Good evening. My name is Kevin. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> Thanks, Wayne. Thanks for dinner. Ah. <laughs> <sighs> <sighs> It's good to be here, and uh, thanks to the the committee too for this uh, for this assembly for allowing Wayne to roll the dice and take a shot on letting me speak. You know, we'll, hopefully I won't disappoint you too much, buddy, but we'll see what happens. Um, I am a member of the Denver Thursday Night Group. We meet in Denver on Thursday night. <laughs> You would be amazed how many people ask that question. <laughs> we meet in a church basement to really hide, you know, really keep things real and different. We have two meetings. The first meeting is at 6.30. It's called the beginner's meeting. And uh, it's an open meeting. And we have a home group member that uh, for, the, for four weeks goes over the first three steps. Because we think those are really important. And... Um, then at 8 o'clock, we have the big meeting. The big meeting is closed. There's about 125 to 175 people that show up every Thursday night, and it's a call-up podium meeting kind of like this, and you're given seven minutes to speak, and you're told what to say, what you were like, what happened, and what you're like now. In five minutes, you get a little sign with a guy that's a little hippie. It gives you the peace sign. You have two minutes left. And at seven minutes, the guy goes, has a red shirt, and it says, you're done. Sit down. Um, I, <laughs> I like that group a lot. I have a sponsor. His name's Jack. He lives in Gillette, Wyoming. Uh, he has a sponsor. His name's Jerry. He lives in Manhattan, Kansas. i got to tell you, at 20 years sober, the best deal I've ever had is one that lives 500 miles north and one's 1,000 miles that way, man. It's fantastic. <laughs> the problem is they both lived in Denver, and they both are guys that I really look up to and love and think the world of, and... They have lots of friends in this room, so I know right now people are texting them. You're not going to believe what Kevin just said. Because <laughs> they call. You narcs, you know, get in on me. Uh, Jack and Jerry uh, are the men that I want to be and the men that I look up to. They are decent, kind, caring, loving people, and uh, they've shown me a long path. Um, every, by very, very blue moon, we get a chance to hang out together at a conference or an assembly like this. And, you know, the three of us will be sitting around talking, and, you know, Jerry will put his arm around me and he'll say, You know, Kevin, it is our sponsee's job to keep us sober with all their antics. And I'm like, oh, I know. Is that the truth or what? And he goes, And you're doing a hell of a job with Jack. <laughs> and they start laughing hysterically, you know. I love that. Nothing like being picked on, you know. Um, I've been continuously sober since May 5th, 1991. I got sober in Southern California. If you want to know what kind of person stops drinking on Cinco de Mayo in L.A. Hi. <laughs> Things were going really well. <laughs> uh, couldn't have been the sixth, you know. I grew up in... Uh, Palo Alto, California. Um, it was a cute little college town. You know, it was a lot of fun. You really couldn't get into a lot of trouble. And, and I tried. But, you know, I mean, I know when you look at me, you think international jewel thief, you know, <laughs> CIA operative, you know. 
you know, uh, crooked lawyer, something like that. But sadly, no, you have a drunk fraternity boy in front of you, you know, and that's about as good as it's going to get with me. Um, I grew up in Palo Alto. You know, my my mom and dad moved there because they wanted a the kids to go to good schools and live in a good town and have a good place. And, you know, we had a really nice house. My dad was very successful. I had a good job. And and my mom stayed home and raised my sister and I. And, you know, we had, we had a pool. We had a golden retriever. You know, life was good. Life was fantastic. I can tell you that I remember as a child uh, hitting sips off dad's cocktails. He was a scotch man. And, uh, and I liked that stuff as a little kid. And I also remember... Um, you're going to love the little Colorado reference I'm from a kid from Northern California. I remember opening Dad's Coors beer cans when they had the two pop-top thing deals, you know, and thinking that was really cool, you know, and I'm shaking it up and handing it to Dad. Uh, you know. <laughs> that was fun. I hit uh, alcohol when I was 12 years old in the Boy Scouts of America. Didn't everybody? And uh, we had a real active group, a troop. We went backpacking about once or twice a month. Went on these long trips out in the Sierras for weeks at a time. And, and it was fun. It was great. I really had a good time. But I noticed when we were camping that the older guys always got to camp a little bit further away from the parents. And there was always stuff going on over there. And it was loud. And it was raucous. And they were having a good time. And I wanted to get in on that. And I did. You know, when I was 12, I kind of wandered over to that campsite and checked out what was going on. It turned out they were drinking, and they were doing some other non-conference-approved stuff. And, <laughs> and, <laughs> and I liked that a lot, too. Um, so I'm hanging out with those guys, having a great time. And, you know, I got to tell you, uh, you know, in the part of the big book where Bill talks about how he has arrived, you know, and everything is going his way, and drinking's working for him. That, for me, that was high school, 14 to 18, you know. And, you know, you tell non-alcoholics or people that don't go to Allen on that, you're like, yeah, you know, drinking really worked for me when I was 14. They're like, what? You know, <laughs> what did you just say? You know, and you're like, well, I don't know. You know, it's just, you know, it was it worked well. I I had a lot of fun. I had a really good time. You know, I was a good athlete. I was a reasonable student. Did well in school. Had a lot of fun. Had a lot of fun, as a matter of fact. I really enjoyed high school. My 30th high school reunion is coming up this August, and I'm helping plan that. And it's uh, that's a real treat. You know, it's going to be a, it's going to be a really neat deal. Um, the fun really started for me. The real serious fun uh, was in the fall of 1982. When I uh, I went to college, and I, I was I enrolled as a freshman at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles in 1982, and uh, <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> you know, I found uh, I found a place that had an unlimited supply of booze, drugs, and women. You know, and I was like, this is paradise. I am never leaving. You know, <laughs> and that's almost what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and uh, my fresh my first week of uh, school, actually the week before school, you go down there for orientation, and this is going to give you a taste of what college was like for me. Um, they uh, they run you through orientation, and they have all these cute little parties and bands and stuff like that, and they're, you know, welcome to college, welcome to USC, and all that kind of nonsense. And 
And that was the weekend, and you've got to dig back into your, your memory banks if you're 48 like me or a little bit older. That was the weekend that the, uh, the guy, who, uh, Steve Wozniak, that started, one of the two guys that started Apple Computer, threw a three-day concert called the Us Festival. And I was supposed to be going to this orientation process, learning where my classes were, how to be a good student, you know, how to, how to behave properly in college. My buddies were like, dude, we're going to a three-day concert. Everyone's going to be there. And, you know, I mean, it literally was. Every, every band in 1982 was there. And they're like, are you in? I'm like, hell yeah, I'm in. Let's go. You know, we went. We slept in the car and had a great time. And it was a ball. You know, but that's what college was like for me. School? No, school's getting in the way of a good time. I'm not going to school. You know, and I could fill you full of stories of, you know, school and what I did and what I didn't do and, and all that sort of stuff. But the bottom line is, after about six years of college, um, and why is that funny? <laughs> After about six years of college, my parents wanted to know when I was going to graduate. <laughs> and so did I. <laughs> and uh, so I sent, the, I sent in the form, you know, you know, I don't know what the hell they call it, but it's the form where you figure out whether or not you're going to graduate. And, you know, what I got back in the mail was basically, what, what are you, out of your mind? You know, you're not going to graduate. You're not even enrolled, you know. <laughs> you know, and that's because you're on academic probation. You owe us $10,000. And, oh, by the way, you know, the, the head cop at USC has been looking for you. And he's he had some unresolved issues. And <laughs> ah, I miss college. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> so, of course, I got this letter, and I read that, and I'm like, oh, I must be graduating this May, you know. And my freshman year, one of my best friends uh, said, hey, I've got this really great idea what we can do for fun. And I was like, yeah, okay, what are we going to do for fun? I'm always up for fun. And uh, he's like, well, it turns out that you don't actually have to graduate to go through the graduation ceremonies. <laughs> you can rent a cap and gown, and you can buy announcements. Actually, when I tell the story and he's there, he's like, I never told you about the announcements. That was, that was you. <laughs> so, and he goes, and, and then you walk, I mean, you know, this is 1982 or 83 or whatever, you know, or whatever the hell I just, 88. And, right, one, two, 88. <laughs> and, uh, oh shit. <laughs> they, uh, you know, they weren't as computerized. It wasn't quite the big deal. And so what uh, what they did is they had a podium like this, and, you know, we were all standing there in our caps and gowns and doing our thing. And, and you walked up here, handed the guy a piece of paper, and, you know, the guy read your name off, and it was, you know, Kevin Peterson, Economics, Dean's List. You might as well go big, right? Uh, <laughs> I really did that. <laughs> My dad said that's what tipped him off. <laughs> so, uh, so I faked my graduation from college, you know. And, uh, you know, that's as good as it gets for me drinking. You know, I would love to have, like, a SWAT team story or be on CNN or, you know, thank God I wasn't drinking during camera phones and YouTube. Woo-hoo! I don't know how you kids are getting away with that nonsense, but, you know, uh, that's it. That's my drinking summed up. You know, that's as good as it gets for me, you know. 
I graduated and uh, went on to an illustrious, I moved back to Palo Alto and I moved back, I went into an illustrious career of bartending. And what I like to call my own um, home multi-level marketing pharmaceutical sales operation. <laughs> I got to tell you, I am a terrible drug dealer. I, I lost so much damn money. I mean, I was just constantly bleeding the money, and I was doing it with my roommate, and he's like, how are we constantly losing money? You know, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> and uh, I'm bartending, and I'm stealing money from the places I'm bartending, and I'm bartending in nice places, you know, and I'm having a lot of fun and going on a lot of great trips. You know, I went to the Super Bowl. I went to Mardi Gras. You know, I, I followed the USC football team around the country. I mean, I had a blast, you know, and... I looked at all my buddies who were dressing like this and going to their nine-to-five jobs and, you know, grinding it out and doing the right thing. And I thought, man, you poor suckers. You know, look how lame your life is, you know. And and at the time, you know, I was in my late 20s, and they were kind of like, yeah, damn, and Kevin's having all the fun. And uh, in uh, August of 1990, um, we had a family reunion. My family, I'm the fourth generation from California. And my family uh, founded a little town in the central California called Templeton, California, which, you know, means we were the first farmers. It doesn't really, I mean, it's not like, you know, we didn't fund San Francisco, you know, and uh, which kind of sucks, you know. <laughs> but, uh, and so we had this huge family reunion, 120 people. It was a really big deal. And it was a lot of fun. And uh, my cousin and I uh, were drunk the entire time. And, and I mean, you know, drunk, wasted the entire time, and we had a ball. And uh, at the end of the four-day, three- or four-day event, my father looked at me and he said, hey, why don't we drive home together? And home was four hours away. I was like, yeah, okay, sure, because, you know, the <laughs> the car he had given me had somehow magically disappeared, and, uh, you know, I needed the money. <laughs> and uh, so I, not, not at the event, but earlier. So I hooked a ride home with Dad, and, and we got up to his brand-new BMW, and he threw the keys at me. He was like, why don't you drive? And I should have smelled a rat. <laughs> and uh, got in the car with Dad, get out to the freeway. Here's how, here's how the conversation starts. My dad's like, Kevin, you're my only son and I love you. But I don't believe a word out of your mouth. I think you're a liar, cheat, and a thief. Probably an alcoholic and a drug addict. I don't think you graduated from college. I think the car I gave you, you sold for drugs. And he just sort of went down the list. And and he said, you know, your mother and I are kind of done with you, and we're kind of done with this crap. And he's got my keys in his hands, and he's peeling off the house keys and peeling off the extra car keys, you know. And he's like, so here's the deal. You're no longer welcome in the house. Um, you're no longer welcome as part of the family. And your younger sister, who idolizes you, really doesn't want to be around you and can't stand you. You know, and I remember thinking, God damn, three hours and 50 minutes left, you know. <laughs> the hell are we going to talk about now, you know? <laughs> I told this, I spoke about a year and a half ago in Boulder, and my parents came, and my sister and her husband came, and I told this, and the people sitting behind my parents said it was hysterical, because every time I told a story like that, my parents were like, yep, mm -hmm, yeah, that's it. <laughs> and uh, so I'm not lying. <laughs> and uh, So... You know, we got back to Palo Alto, and, you know, and I was like, oh, they pulled this crap before, you know, trying to be all hard line on me and tough guy. And, and uh, 
This time they actually meant it. They actually held their ground for like three or four weeks, and I was really getting pissed because, you know, I wasn't being able to take advantage of the opportunities that were provided by having wealthy parents, you know. I lived in an apartment with my buddy, my my partner in my business, and, uh, you know, we were, I wasn't getting access to all the goodies I was used to getting, and I was getting pissed, and, and I was getting really angry, and I was like, you know, this is crap, man. I, my dad's treating me like crap. This is nonsense. He's been beating on me, since, not physically, but he's been emotionally draining me since I was a child, and, oh, this is so terrible, <laughs> you know. So I did what every tough guy alcoholic does. I called mom, you know. <laughs> And the conversation went something like this. Mom, you dad, this jerk. You're not letting me in the house, in the car. You know, mom was ready. And she said, oh, honey, you know, I think if you'd uh, agreed to go see a therapist with dad, he'd probably lighten up a little bit. I thought, therapist, no problem. I've been lying to those suckers for years, you know. So I started seeing this shrink with my dad. And a funny thing happened. I actually started telling the truth. You know, I actually came clean now, the fact that there was a third party a witness in the room was very helpful, you know, and, and, I, and, and I, I told the whole graduation story to Dad, you know, and, and uh, I'm not sober at this point, by the way. And every Thursday morning at 10 o'clock, we're meeting with Julian. And then one week, my family, my mom and my dad went away for my mom's birthday, and uh, the therapist was like, hey, why don't we get together anyway? And I was like, oh, yeah, sure, whatever, I don't care, you know, and... and uh, He's like, well, why, you know, I'll see you Thursday morning at 10 o'clock. I said, okay, great. That sounds fantastic. And I roll in Thursday morning at 10 o'clock, and I'm a little hungover, and you're driving my scooter because I don't have a car. And uh, But I'm cool when I drive a scooter, you know. <laughs> and uh, the guy looks at me, and he's like, what do you want to talk about today, Kevin? I said, you know, man, I don't really care because normally we pick up when Dad's here, and we pick up where we left off last week. What do you want to talk about? And he looked at me, and he's like, well, I definitely have something I want to talk about. And I was like, oh, okay, fine. What do you want to talk about? He's like, well, but you're the client, so you get to choose. I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ. What do you want, you know? And he looked me straight in the eye, and he said, I think you're an alcoholic. And I think you might be a drug addict. And a very strange thing happened. I looked him back in the eye and said, I think you're right. What do I do? Now, if you're an alcoholic like I am, that was not the first time anyone had said that to me. My family had tried a number of times. I had a girl that I'd been dating and <laughs> she said, we spent the weekend skiing together and we came back and we had. she wanted to have this little heart-to-heart -heart talk and she said, you know, Kevin, I love you and, and, and I want to be with you and I want to be your girlfriend. But um, that means you got to quit drinking, doing drugs and sleeping with other girls. You know? <laughs> and I looked at her and I said, you know, can I get back to you on that? I really said that. She lives in Colorado now. She never misses an opportunity to remind me. <laughs> and uh, So when he hit me with that, I was like, yeah, man, you got me. What the hell's going on here? My life sucks. You know, remember the last 90 days? We always talk about, you know, the first 30 days, the first 60 days, the first 90 days. Let's talk about that last 90 days. All hell is breaking loose in my life, you know? I'm not answering the phone. I'm sure as hell not answering the door. You know, one time this guy came, within the last 90 days, this guy came to the door, and he's like, is Kevin Peterson here? And I'm like, nope. Because <laughs> <laughs> so I realized he didn't know who the hell I am. He just asked. You know? And he's like, well, I'm here to repossess his Jetta, or his GTI. I bought another car. 
wasn't making any payments, but I'd bought another car. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I think he moved to L.A. And uh, the guy's like, oh, okay, well, here's my card. I'm like, yeah, I'm really sorry, dude. You're going to have a rough day. And see you later. And the guy took off. I'm like, I am a genius, you know, criminal mastermind, you know, lying to the repo man. So, uh, so uh, I ended up, oh, uh, the therapist looked at me and he's like, um, I want you to call this guy who runs the local rehab center. And his name's, you know, Barry, Dr. Rosen. And I was at Sequoia Hospital. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going to jail. Thanks anyway. I'm not calling that guy. And so, like, a week later, I'm back in therapy with my dad, you know, and uh, the therapist is like, I think Kevin has something he wants to tell us. And and so I told I was like, oh, Dad, I'm an alcoholic, and I might be a drug addict. And my dad, he just took this visible sigh of relief. He's like, God, I, I knew something was going on. You're, you're just, you're too damn smart to be screwing everything up all the time. And I'm like, thanks, Dad. You know, <laughs> love you too, pal. <laughs> And uh, and the therapist is like, he's like so hey um, did you call my friend Barry at the rehab center I'm like that guy is so hard to get a hold of I'm I have left him a message every goddamn day I am trying my ass off and he's like oh really okay hold on a second and he, you know he walks over to his desk picks up the phone and he's like hey you know Barry yeah it's Julian yeah remember that kid I told you about hold on hi. Yeah, yeah, sorry I didn't return your call. Yeah, yeah. I know you don't work at 2 in the morning. Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> so I had an appointment with this dude, and uh, I went and sat with him for about two hours. And uh, we talked about, you know, alcoholism and, you know, what that was all about and what that looked like and what the story was. And he's like, so what's your plan, man? I said, well, I'm going back to L.A. It turns out if uh, I want to finish what I started at USC, and, and, and I found out that if you got a job on the campus, a real full-time staff job, school was free. Because my parents applauded my decision to go back to school, but at that point, USC was $25,000 a year, and they'd already, I'd already sucked six years out of them, and they were like, we think it's great you're coming back to school. Good luck. <laughs> They're not getting anything out of us, champ. And uh, so the guy was like, well, it sounds like you actually have a plan. If you didn't have a plan, I was going to throw you into inpatient for six weeks and outpatient for six months. He goes, well, just promise me one thing. I said, sure, what's that? He goes, when you get to L.A., you go to an AA meeting. I was like, yeah, sure, no problem. And <laughs> what? <laughs> You're supposed to wait till I tell you before you laugh. <laughs> you know, and... Uh, Three weeks later, when I moved to L.A., you know, three days after I moved to L.A., of course, I went to my first AA meeting. I walked in. Uh, I, had a, I have a friend. Uh, I've had a series of angels in my life that have always watched over me. And one of them is this woman named Liz at USC, and she is the secretary of the president of the university. And if you work for any major institution or major corporation or anything along those lines, you realize the president, the CEO, they're kind of a figurehead, and they really don't have that much day-to-day -day power. But the secretary to the president has the voice of God, you know, and I was her second son. I was her baby, you know, her, her, buddy, her, her real son and I were drinking buddies and her husband and my dad were drinking buddies and her husband had died of cancer and pancreatitis and all sorts of stuff. So I walked into her office, uh, the June 3rd, I got sober on May 5th and I did 28 days in an apartment by myself. Smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee, and watching Three Stooges reruns. You know, that's my version of rehab. <laughs> so I, go, I walk into her office June 3rd, uh, 1991, and I sit down with her, and I said, Liz, 
I don't know if you realize this, but I never really graduated from USC. And she just smiled and she said, Kevin, I'm the president's secretary. I'm well aware of the fact that you didn't graduate from USC. And here's your long list of people you need to talk to. And I've already called them all and called in a favor in your name. And, and so we're going to get you back enrolled in school. We're going to solve that problem. However, the first person at the top of that list, his name's Ron. He works in the athletic department. You need to go talk to him right now. And I was like, okay, boom, 8.30. Shot right over to the, to the athletic department and sat down with this guy. And lo and behold, I swear to God, I was staring in a mirror. You know, here was a guy who had blonde hair, green eyes, a little chunky, had been a fraternity boy at USC, and he was nine years sober. And he proceeded to spend two hours with me describing the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I realized I could go to AA. If he's going to AA, I can go to AA. And that night, he took me to my first meeting. And that meeting was the San Vicente Men's Stag. It's at 12,000 San Vicente. It's at 8 o'clock on Monday nights. It's in the church in the back on the upstairs. I walked in, and there was 100 guys. And I thought, I swear to God, when I agreed to go at an AA meeting, I thought I was going to walk into a place where there was going to be a bunch of guys pushing shopping carts, wearing trench coats, smelly, long, greasy hair, and missing teeth. They were there. You know, I really liked those guys. We had a lot in common, which was weird. But, <laughs> you know... <laughs> But there were a lot of other guys that looked just like me, and, and I just found my home, and I found my first sponsor there. And my first sponsor was a big, fat Armenian jeweler named Jack. And uh, Jack was awesome, man. He was a great guy. And he had uh, about 20, 25 guys that he sponsored, and, and then they're sort of satellites of the, the kids that they sponsored. And, you know, good old Southern California sobriety, you know. We nailed fellowship and service hard. Every meeting we went to, and we went to a meeting every single night, Every meeting we had some level of commitment. And this Southern California sobriety is a little bit different than here in the sense that they will manufacture on the spot a service commitment for you. Oh, you're new, Kevin? Oh, your job is to count the wrinkles on the tablecloth, you know? And every week that number better be the same, you know? And if it isn't, we're in big trouble. And so, you know, you're walking around thinking, man, I have the most important job in AA. If I don't count the wrinkles in the tablecloth, AA is going to literally fall apart. And, you know, but they do that stuff out there. And I bought into it, hook, line, and sinker. And I ran with this guy, Jack, and this crowd of guys. And we had a lot of fun. And we talked to each other every day. And we went to meetings together all the time. We did stuff on the weekends. I mean, you never had a spare moment. I didn't know you could go out drinking again. I was too damn busy, you know. They would, um, my car got repossessed. And funny thing when you don't make payments. And and uh, so I couldn't get a ride. I, didn't, I couldn't drive and meet the guys at the meeting. So they came and got me. And I lived downtown Los Angeles. And these guys lived on the west side or the valley. It was way out of their way, but it was their service commitment, I found out later, that one of them got stuck with the Kevin commitment, you know. <laughs> I'm not kidding about that either. <laughs> one of them made amends to me for being so pissed at me all the time. <laughs> and... Uh, so I'm running with this guy and this gang, and we're having a great time. It's a lot of fun. And I make it about a year and a half. And something starts to change. I am back doing all my barroom behavior. I am sleeping around. I'm writing bad checks. I'm getting in trouble at work for cutting corners. Oh, I got a job at the university. And I started going back to school. And I started taking one class at a time, you know. And, uh, and you know, I just I, I started to have this life. You know, I started to have this responsible adult life. And, um, but after about 18 months, it was just not happening. It was falling apart, and I, was, I didn't know what to do. 
And it turned out one of my buddies in our gang was feeling the same way. And he had about five years sober. He confided to me that he was going to blow his head off. And he had the gun. And I didn't understand that. You know, now in our circle of gang, our gang of, you know, guys, there was always like this revolving door kind of on the fringe, right? There's these guys that go in and go out, go in and go out. And you never figured out why. You never knew what was going on. And I didn't understand it, but they just did. And my buddy, Barry, was his name, um, confided to me that he was done. And then a really funny thing happened. Barry was a pharmacist in Santa Monica, California. And in walked this guy into his pharmacy that we had seen speak repeatedly. Southern California is full of uh, speaker meetings all the time. And we had seen this guy, Joe Hawk, who's now passed away, so we can use his last name, um, speak a number of times. And I got to tell you, it wasn't for us. You know, he talked about the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. He talked about the phenomenon of craving. He talked about writing inventory. He talked about making amends. Then he talked about carrying the message and helping others. Not very sexy or exciting. You know, we, we wanted, it's, it's L.A., man. We wanted to hear about the money, the prestige, the property, the women, the stuff. You know, all the goodies. I went to rehab, and after I got done with rehab, I got all my goodies back, and now I'm a big fish, and look at me, and oh, you know, time's up. Okay, well, go to meetings. You know, that's what we heard a lot. And this guy was boring. But this guy, Joe, walks into Barry's pharmacy, takes one look at Barry, and he's like, and pardon me for my language, but he's, man, you look like shit. You know, and, and Barry was like, well, you know, I'm five years sober, and I sponsor three guys, and I have a sponsor, and, and when we go to meetings every day, and he starts outlining this, this intense, you know, time commitment that we have. And Joe looked at him, and he's like, yeah, um, where are you in the big book? And, you know, Barry just kind of gave him that blank stare that people give you when they don't understand what you're talking about. And he's like, huh? You know? And Joe was like, what step are you on? And Barry's like, well, I say the third step prayer every morning. And Joe's like, that's not what I asked you. You know, what step are you on? And Barry didn't have an answer. So Joe's like, well, look, we have this little meeting on Second and Hill um, in Santa Monica on Tuesday nights at 730. It's called As It's Outlined in the Big Book. And uh, why don't you drop by? And we'll see what we can do. And Barry dropped by because he was desperate. And things started to change. Barry no longer wanted to kill himself. Barry started talking about these very strange things, like the phenomenon of craving, the mental obsession, and the spiritual malady. He started quoting things out of the big book about Jim and Fred and the jaywalker. And we were like, where, where is this stuff? It's not in my book, you know. <laughs> what are you talking about? But I saw a change. I saw the change, you know. And, and uh, another thing in Southern California, we call the person that brings you in out from the cold is your Eskimo. And Barry for will ever be my Eskimo. Because I confided in him at 18 months, I was ready to cash out. I was done. This AA stuff's crap. I want to go back to my old life. I'm miserable. And he said, well, why don't you come with me to this meeting and see what you think. And I walked into this powerful, powerful big book meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I felt the change. Immediately felt the change. And these people were talking about real stuff. You know, They actually talked about drinking. I didn't know you could do that. I thought that was against the rules. You know, there's this one dude, I love this guy, a little gangbanger from South Central named GW, and he would sit there and talk about holding on to a 40-ouncer on a hot summer morning and feeling the, the sweat come off the can down on your fingers. I mean, and I was just right there. I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Magnum malt liquor, that's my stuff, baby. I get it, you know, because I did it. I'm with him. And... uh 
I found a guy in that meeting that I really identified with. Um, and he was this really interesting dude named Miles. And he was a surfer. And he was 40 years old, and he was living with his parents. And, and he was a house painter, you know, part-time house painter. And he was actually living with his adopted parents in, in Redondo Beach. And um, I marched up to him. I said, hey, Miles, I'd like you to be my sponsor. And he was like, well, I don't know. What makes you think you're an alcoholic? I'm like, well, goddamn, I better be. I've been spending a lot of time with these people. <laughs> Jesus Christ, you know? I want my year and a half back. And, uh, what's that, about 500 bucks? I want my goddamn money, you know? And, and, uh, he's like, well, here's my phone number. Why don't you give me a call? So I called him, and I was like, yo, I really want you to be my sponsor, and I want to get together with you. And he's like, well, Kevin, I have Friday nights at 7 o'clock available at my house here down here at Redondo Beach. So if you want to come, that's great. And I was like, yeah, Miles, here's the thing. I don't have a car. It got repossessed. I live downtown Los Angeles. That's about 30, 35 minutes away from you. I was kind of hoping you could come to me and hang out with me at my house. And I swear to God, I could hear him smile on the phone, you know. <laughs> he said, Kevin, you don't have anything I want, you know. <laughs> If you want what I have, you'll be at my house on Friday night at 7 o'clock. And guess where I was for the next year and a half of my life on Friday night at 7 o'clock? And we did a revolutionary thing. That man opened up the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he started on the empty pages. And he said, Kevin, this is what you know about AA. <laughs> I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know? And away we went, you know. He read the book to me as if I was illiterate. Turned out I was, you know. And he, he outlined the program of action in the first 164 pages. He would get to a story, and he'd read the story about the jaywalker, about Jim, about Fred, about the phenomenon of craving, you know, the story about the important business appointment that got missed. And he'd read that story to me, and he'd stop. And he'd say, next week, Kevin, you need to come back with your story, your version of this story. You don't just get to say, yeah, I did that. You've got to come back with your exact, I want to know who you were with, what you were drinking, what you were wearing, what bar you were at, what it smelled like. And I was just like, oh, shit, all right, no problem. And at the end of the night, he would close his big book. And he would look at me and he'd say, Kevin, do you know why we're doing this? And I'd say, yes, Miles, so I can stay sober the rest of my life. And he'd say, wrong, come back next week. <laughs> and then the next week I'd have another flowery answer like, you know, oh, so I can become a better citizen. And he's like, no, wrong, come back next week. You know, and then the week after that it was because I was going to be a better family member, blah, 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 blah. And I'm a pretty sharp guy, so after about eight weeks of this, you know, <laughs> I looked at him and I was like, no, Miles, I don't know why we're doing this. Please tell me, why are we doing this? jerk <laughs> and say that you know <laughs> and he looked at me and he said he closed his book and he looked at me and he said because kevin in the very near future some kid's going to walk up to you and he's going to ask you for help and he's going to ask you to take him through the program of alcoholics anonymous and he's going to knock on your door he's going to call your phone he's going to corner you in a meeting and if you're not properly armed with the facts about yourself and your relationship with god alcohol and the 12 steps you'll probably kill him that's why you're going to do this. He said, I don't give a damn if you graduate from college. I don't care if you make money. I don't care if you find the woman of your dreams. I don't care if you buy that big Ford truck that you've been dreaming about. None of that crap matters to me. All that matters to me is that you step up to the plate and help someone when they ask for help. 
and that that's your number one priority for the rest of your life. See, you're in a unique position. No one else has your experience and your story. They said, and I guarantee you, you're going to run across an array of drug fraternity boys, and they're going to flock to you like the Pied Piper. You know, and, and he was right. He was damned right. And we, went, we just went through the process of working the 12 steps together, and we had a ball. You know, I really enjoyed it. I found my way down to that man's house every, every Friday night. And then his, his real father in Nevada got cancer, and he had to go take care of his real dad because that's what, that's what we do. You know, we step up. And um, he handed me off to another guy, you know, and that guy got me through my amends. You know, and about that time, 1993 or so, my sister had moved to uh, Boulder. And I came out to visit, and I was just like, whoa, this place is awesome. It beats the hell out of L.A., let me tell you. I'd had enough of that place. And uh, our little group had these, uh, these retreats we'd go on in Santa Barbara at a monastery. And uh, this old guy from Denver would come out, and he'd bring this other old guy. And there was Don and Gary, you know, and they'd come out, and they'd, they'd just talk about the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and how to work the 12 steps. That's all they would do was just lay the stories down on us and talk to us. And, and I didn't know what was going on, but I sure as hell knew I wanted what those guys had. And that's really what it came down to. So I followed them. You know, when my sister moved to Colorado, I was like, I'm going to Colorado. I know it's safe because, you know, that's where Don and Gary live. And uh, so in August of 1995, I moved out to Colorado. And, uh, and the first man I met, uh, actually the first AA member I met was Heidi Huff. Oops, Heidi H., sorry. And uh, my bad. And uh, she and David, her husband, uh, Don gave me their phone number because I was living in Arvada and they lived up in Broomfield. And I went to their house to go to the first meeting I came to in Colorado was an old meeting that a bunch of us used to go to up in Broomfield called Change or Die. You know, and <laughs> right on, Thomas. <laughs> I was here, if you want to hear some stories, I was here when Thomas first came in, okay? And I'll tell you all about that. <laughs> but uh, we, had, we had a great time at this group. This is a great group, and, and David had the flu, so Heidi directed me to the meeting. But those are the people I met, and I just stuck with that crowd. And then they took me to Denver Thursday night, and that became my home group, you know? And to be honest with you, I never looked back. Um, you know, so it was what it was like, and that's what happened. And I'm a firm believer that there are two sets of what it was like, what happened, and what I'm like now. You know, for me, that there was the one that got me sober, and then there's the one that got me involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I mean truly involved. You know, my buddy Bill, um, Bill C., out in uh, Southern California, talks about there are two kinds of people in Alcoholics Anonymous. There's those that are doing it and those that aren't. And that's not a judgment, you know, and, and that's not spiritual arrogance. It can be, but it's, his point is somehow there are people in AA that can get away with, and Al-Anon, that can get away with not working the steps. And God bless them. I don't know how they do that. I don't know any other option, you know. And, and the way I've always translated it back to my sponsees is that, you know, there's two different kinds of people at the, uh, at the campfire, you know. There's the people that sort of just don't get too close because it might hurt and they might get burned. And there's the other people that just walk right into the fire, and have no fear whatsoever because they have faith, you know, and they also have desperation. And that's been me. My first service commitment <laughs> back in Los Angeles, I was the GSR for the USC campus group because I was the only one dumb enough to say, yes, I'd do it, you know. <laughs> and uh, let me tell you about my first district meeting. You're going to love this. 
I uh, went to this, this district meeting, and there was about 40 of us there. And it was in Koreatown at this Korean church. And uh, there's a, there was a group in L.A. It used to be called um, We Agnostics, and they firmly did not believe in God. And, you know, they were agnostics. And, and uh, there was a guy that was one of their power leaders. He's passed away since. His name was Charlie. And he was at that group and at that district meeting. And he was preaching about how there weren't enough Korean alcoholics. You know, <laughs> and I'm like, and, it, and he's like, we need to do a better job of getting into the community and penetrating the community and reaching out to the lawyers and the doctors and the ministers and the community leaders and get us some more Korean alcoholics, you know, and I think I'm about like, you know, nine months sober, you know, not realizing there are times when you just keep your mouth shut, you know, <laughs> and, and we're literally at the, you know, we're at opposite ends of this long table, right? And I'm like, you know, I don't understand that. I thought this was all about attraction, not promotion. And I swear to God, it was like a Sergio Leone Western movie. You know, you heard the whip crack and the whistle and the music started from the good, the bad, and the ugly, and the chairs shuffled back. And, you know, it was me and him, you know. <laughs> it was We were doing big books at ten paces. And, and <laughs> you know, and he just laid it down. He's like, well, you know, in my 30 years of Alcoholics Anonymous, and, 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 and I was just like, well, you know, it says attraction, not promotion. And I don't understand. I mean, what do we meet quotas around here? And, you know, and, <laughs> and you know, these people were giving me looks like, what are you out of your goddamn mind? You know, what are you doing? And, but that, ever since I've been, you know, getting involved in service work and being a little bit outspoken and, and not being shy about what I think and what I feel. And, you know, Miles taught me that too. He said, you know, the triangle is recovery, unity, and service. You know, recovery is your 12 steps. Unity is the 12 traditions of your group, and you need to be a member of your home group. You need to go to your group conscience. You need to participate. You need to step up. And service is the 12 concepts. You need to get involved in the service level. He goes, I'm not talking about just doing the ashtrays and the coffee cups. Yes, I'm so old that we did ashtrays and coffee cups. And, but you've got to do more than that. You know, you've got to help preserve what we've got here. You've got to commit. You've got to be a part of the team. And i got to tell you, the people that I sponsor today, they'll tell you. When I talk to them, the first question out of my mouth is, you know, let's talk about the triangle. You know, where's your recovery? Where's your unity? Where's your service? Tell me where God is in this equation. Let's talk about that. I want to hear about where you are in that process. You know, I'm really not interested in all the other accoutrements and the stuff. Um, what it's like today. <sighs> my life is amazing. I have to be honest with you, um, if I would have, you know, 21 years ago, if I would have written out what I thought my life would be or could be or wanted to be, I would have sold myself so damn short, not even close, you know. Um, I, uh, I was in sales, you know, big shock there, right? And uh, I did sales for about 20 years, and about five years ago I woke up one day and was like, yeah, that's it, I'm done. Can't do sales anymore. I walked away from a real nice salary, and a real nice car. I still miss the car. <laughs> and, uh, and I sat down and talked to two really close friends of mine that I love a great deal, one of which is a member of our fellowship, and he had decided to leave his sales world and become a nurse. And I didn't understand that, and I was like, you know, yo, Brad, why, why did you decide to become a nurse? And he's like, well, Kevin, you know, it says in the big book that our job now is to be of maximum service to others, to God and our fellows, and that we have to take this stuff and practice these things, practice these principles in all our affairs. He goes, and I think that means more than an hour or two a day at a meeting and on the phone. 
I think that means across the board, 100% universal engaged. And he and I had been raised by the same people in Alcoholics Anonymous, these people that we looked up to and admired and you know, were mentored by. And, and these people committed their lives to social services. You know, Don was in corrections his entire life, in corrections, and then working in corrections, you know, <laughs> his entire life, you know. And then he introduced me to another guy out of North Carolina named Tom, and Tom's the same way, in corrections and then working in corrections his entire life. And they kept preaching about this belief that if you just put our work first and let God take care of you, he'll always make sure you're okay. You will always be fed. You will always be housed. You will always be clothed. You will be okay. Just do God's work. And uh, I was like, yeah, I get it. That's how I feel. I talked to another friend of mine who was not in our program, but he had decided to become a therapist. And we had a long conversation. And he basically said exactly the same thing as Brad. And these were the things that were swimming through my head and my heart. So I was like, yeah, you know what, that's it. And then, you know, 16 years sober in true alcoholic fashion, I walked into my office, dropped my keys on the, the table, and quit. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> and uh, I applied to one school. I put all my eggs in one basket, and um, I got in. And last May, I graduated with a master's in marriage and family therapy from Regis University, you know. Um, I took a class there in substance abuse, and i got to tell you, they think I am a genius. Uh, <laughs> you know, the professor was like, man, you just teach. I'm just going to go have some coffee and watch TV. <laughs> I have found my home. I have truly found my passion and, my, and what I do and what I love what I do. I love who I do it with. I love my clients. My clients currently, um, the work that I do is uh, I work with uh, teenagers in crisis and Nine times out of ten, or ten times out of ten, they're in the ER because they're trying to kill themselves. And I show up, you know, and, and my boss cracks up. She's like, you remember remember Pulp Fiction? You remember Harvey Keitel? He was the wolf. You're the wolf, you know? <laughs> and uh, so she put a picture up on the wall, you know, the wolf. And, and I show up and I offer them solutions. I solve their problems. I help them. And i got to tell you, yeah, I learned a lot in my program at school. I learned a lot. But a lot of what I go in with is this stuff. You know, it's I go in with AA. See, I think when they talked about practicing these principles in all of affairs, they meant that you had to take what you learn here and roll it through your entire life. You know, your relationships, your family, your personal relationships, your professional relationships, 100%, no questions asked across the board. You have to behave this way. And if you do, you know, God takes care of you. He'll make sure everything's okay. You know, I love my work. I love where I'm working. I love what I'm doing. You know, and I'm making a whole lot less money, <laughs> a whole lot less money, but I love it. I've never felt happier in my life. People walk up to me that haven't seen me in years, and they're like, man, you look alive. You look different. You know, what's going on? And I'm like, well, you know, kind of made these big decisions, and here I am, and here's what's going on, and it's kind of a lot of fun, and I really dig it. And at work, they love me. They flat out love me. They're very positive, and they think, they think I'm great, you know, and don't any of you ever tell them differently, <laughs> you know. Um, my life today is that I'm, just, I'm an active member of Denver Thursday night. Um, on Monday nights, you can generally catch me at the Young People's. Friday night, I actually go to another fellowship that uh, I don't really belong to, but I really like the meeting because it was started by the same people that started my home AA group. 
and I feel like it's a great message, and it's a, it's a good crew. Um, I sponsor, I think, six, six or seven people. It's kind of a mixed bag, and, uh, and that's really the great joy in my life today is working with those, I was about to use a derogatory term, the, <laughs> those characters, and, uh, and they're wonderful. I love them. I absolutely love them. They drive me nuts, but I love them, you know, and they, but they're always there when you need them. You know, when your life starts to spin out of control, they're calling you with stuff that's ten times worse, and you're like, whew, thank God, I'm better. You know? My, I had a, uh, for a couple of years, I moved up to Fort Collins, and I had a sponsor up there, a really wonderful man, and he, uh, he had a rule. When you called to do a tenth step, he's like, okay, now you've got to call three people in the program, and you've got to ask them how their day is, and you don't get to tell them anything about your day. And I'm like, okay. And, so, and he sponsored a bunch of guys, and you know, I was part of the RUS group up there in Loveland. If you ever go, it's fantastic, great meeting, great people. But the really funny thing is, you'd be cruising along your day, and out of the blue, you get this phone call from a guy, you know, who you know is sponsored by one of your by your sponsor, and you know, it's like my buddy Ken, and he's like, "Hey, Kevin, how you doing?" I'm like, "Oh, I'm fine. How are you?" He's, "Oh, let's not talk about me. Let's talk about you." <laughs> I'm like, "Ah, you just did a ten step." Ah. <laughs> And he's like, God damn, you know? I'm like, but you can't tell me about it. <laughs> you know, and along the way up there, I picked up this kid that I sponsor now, and he uh, he's just a wonderful kid. You know, I love him to death. And um, his mom's here tonight. You know, she's a member of our program and his stepdad. And, and after a couple of, I think a year or so in AA, this kid... Uh, we were at a meeting, and I think he got a chip, and his his mom walked up to me, and she said, I want to thank you for giving my me my son back, you know? And, I, you know, I looked at her, and I was like, well, you know, it's not me. And she's like, I know, but you did the work. You're the one that put the time with him, and, and he, he's he's back in my life now, and he's he's a good kid today, and, and I really appreciate that. And you can't buy that, you know? You cannot buy that. Um, I'm a member of my family today. You know, for a long time I wasn't, and I'm talking sober. You know, I, they, they all live here in Colorado. My sister moved here, I moved here, and 10 years later my parents moved here. Uh, my sister and I are like, yeah, I don't remember voting on that part, you know. <laughs> they just showed up. We bought a house. And they're like, all right. And... uh my sister and her husband live up in Boulder. I love them a great deal. I have two beautiful nieces, one that's 12 and one that's 8. They are the apple of my eye, and I think they can do no wrong. The, uh, the 12-year-old and I actually started getting along a couple of years ago, which was kind of strange. You know, she had been pretty oppositional with me. And uh, I looked at my brother-in-law about two years ago, and I said, you know, I've noticed that Sam and I really get along. And he's like, yeah, you know, your sister and I have been kind of noticing that too, and we kind of figured that's because you two are right about on the same maturity level now. <laughs> and I can't argue with that, you know. Uh, he had me dead to rights. I'm like, yeah, you got that right. And, and then uh, last year she graduated, or I don't know if they call it graduation, from fifth grade to go to junior or middle school, junior high, whatever the hell it's called. And I went to that celebration because I got invited, you know. And I went and hung, and I went and got flowers for her, you know, because that's what you're supposed to do. And I got her a card, you know, and and I showed up at the this grammar school, and and uh, I was with my mom, and my dad, and my brother-in-law, and my sister, and 
you know, watch this whole thing. You know, and I, I got to tell you that, you know, I'm a big baby. I cry at country music. I cry at commercials, you know. You know that insurance commercial where everybody's helping each other? I can't watch that, you know. <laughs> My buddies are like, ah, look at him. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, shut up, you know. <laughs> and, but that's just how I am, you know. I'm a therapist, and I'm a really good therapist and because I have an incredibly open heart. You know, my boss the other, yesterday looked at me, and she's like, you have such a big heart. You know, she goes, it's just such a pleasure to have you around. So I'm at this graduation, this fifth grade graduation, and we go through the ceremony. And by the way, she graduated for real, you know. <laughs> and so did I in August of 1994. I walked through ceremonies, and, and I, gra- I graduated with a degree in economics from USC. So anything can happen. <laughs> and uh, so I'm at the ceremony, and we're eating cake out in the yard and hanging out. And my little eight-year-old niece comes walking up to me and my brother-in-law, and she's like, Dad, i got to go back to class. We're doing skits. And he's like, oh, okay. And, uh, and I said, hey, can I go with you? I want to see your class and I want to see the skit. You know, and she kind of gave me that, you know, suspicious look like, all right. <laughs> you know, and her, you know, her dad was like, is that okay? And she's like, yeah, that's fine. So we're walking down the hallway and she's holding my hand and she stops and she looks up at me and she goes, don't you embarrass me. <laughs> I said, well, you know, kid, you never know. <laughs> We'll find out. But I have that in my life today. I have a wonderful family that I care for deeply. You know, I I love my work. I have a a wonderful family in Alcoholics Anonymous that I love and care for deeply, and there's a lot of them here tonight, and I really appreciate you being here. And, and, um, you know, what's happened for me over the last couple of years is that I've really started to take, I think, the 10th step to heart on a level that I never really understood before. When it says we cease fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol, what I started to realize is that means I don't manage my life. You know, I mean, everyone here gets that we're powerless over alcohol. Nobody drinks like we do, you know. But it's that second half of the first step that I think we all struggle with on a daily basis. My life is unmanageable? Eh, you know, Maybe. You know, kind of, sort of. I make a lot of money. I got a good job. I got a good life. And we start to take over bit by bit. We start to run the show. We start to think that God actually needs our help, you know. And um, I've noticed, I noticed that people go through cycles in AA at certain age points. And, and like from 15 to, 15 to 20 or so is when I think this epiphany occurs, where at least it occurred with me, where I stopped trying to run the show. I stopped trying to get results. I stopped looking for my AA reward, you know. I, want, I wanted to know when I got my winnings. And, and, and it, the winnings are staying sober. And here's the amazing thing. You know how we lived life with this belief that things may be good today, but watch out because they're going to be crap tomorrow. Because that's how we live. You know, we're on, constantly sabotaging our own lives and destroying other people's lives in the process. But then this weird transition occurs, and all of a sudden we start to get these stretches of good, and then the occasional bad. And then I started to realize I don't even have to have the bad. Don't get me wrong. There's stuff going on in my life. You know, my parents are in their late 70s and 80s. They, they go in and out of the hospital. But when they do, I show up, you know. I plant my butt in the operating waiting room for a day and take the day off from work because that's what you do. You know, but there's not this black cloud on the horizon coming to get me. 
You know, I don't live that way anymore. I truly believe that my life is, is wonderful and it's fantastic and it's great. And, and I'm not on this pink cloud buzz like I was when I first got here, you know, 21 years ago. I'm just living life, I think, the way God wants us to live. And I think anyone can have that. I think it's available to all of us. You know, and it's about, it's about ceasing fighting. You know, it's about not arguing. It's about not trying to manage or plan or dictate or rule or structure. You know, it's about showing up every day and saying, okay, God, what do you got? Bring it. Let's go have some fun. Let's go do some good. Let's enjoy this moment and have a good time. <clears throat> Last story. There was a guy in L.A. that I used to hear speak all the time, this old dude. He was an old biker who was gay. He was a riot. His name was Serenity Sam. And he, uh, <laughs> this guy was a hoot. Did you ever? He was a, the guy was hysterical. And, uh. People ask him, you know, you got 40 years sober. Why do you keep coming to AA meetings? He's like, are you kidding? You people are the most entertaining people I've ever met in my entire life. Why would I not come here? He's like, you know, back, he goes, when I was like 10 years sober, I went to a meeting in, in, in the downtown Los Angeles in the most horrid neighborhood. And, and these three lesbians walked in the room. And, and the one in the middle was drunk, and the other two were holding her up. And the one that was drunk tripped and fell over. And out of her purse came a bottle of booze and a gun and a vibrator. You know, and <laughs> he's like, you don't get that on TV, you know. <laughs> so that's why I keep coming back to AA. I'm looking for that moment, you know. I want that because it's fun and it's great and I enjoy it. And I love the young people in Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, it's just so great to hang out. These knuckleheads that I hang out with are half my age. You know, I, I looked at a, a buddy of mine in a meeting the other day and I was like, you know, when did we become the old guys in the room? You know, I remember being them, you know. And he's like, yeah, and I told my sponsor that. I was like, you know, when I, when I, what I want to be in life is I want to be like you, Jack, and I want to be like Jerry, and I want to be like Don, and I want to be like Mickey, and I want to be like Gary, and the other Gary, you know. And I want to be like those guys. And he's like, Kevin, I got, a, I got news for you. You're one of us. You have become one of us because you have done the work and you've made the effort. Now go out and help others. Thanks a lot. Thank you.